Welcome to The Confessional. I'm Mike Moran. Tell us your deepest, your creepiest, your funniest. Confess to us. No one's listening. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Confessional. I am joined today by a good friend of mine co-hosting, his first time co-hosting The Confessional. Uh, this man is a brilliant musician. Please welcome Justin Hasler. How are you, Justin? Hey, Mike. Good. How you doing, buddy? Thanks I'm for right. stopping by. Justin, we have an amazing guest today. You're not going to believe who we got. I mean, I told you before, but... <laughs> Yeah, I might believe it. This gentleman is a legendary record executive. He is your... I, I came up with this. I'm very proud of this. He is your favorite band's favorite record executive. Nice. That's what I decided. <laughs> nice. Everybody, there you go. It's a good start already. <laughs> absolutely. Uh, everybody loves this guy. Um, he's worked with Metallica, of course, was the, the, the band that he got signed initially. White Zombie, uh, The New Misfits, Public Image Limited... Um, and many more. Please welcome to the show, Michael Olago. Michael, how are you? Good, good. Feeling good on a Sunday. Uh, greetings from New York City. Awesome. Had a great weekend. It was um, my book event. Uh, even though the book's not actually out yet, but we had a book release party, and, and uh, we sold a ton of books, and right. it was really exhilarating and exhausting all at once. Oh, great. <laughs> and, of course, the book yeah. is uh, titled I Am Michael Olago. And that'll be out by uh, Backbeat Books next month, right? That's correct. And the full title, I mean, even though it's a mouthful, it's called I Am Michael Olago, Breathing Music, Signing Metallica, Beating Death. Uh, and wow. yes, it comes, it's on Amazon for pre-order, and it comes out officially, the street date is March 25th. Awesome. So not far from now, like two weeks from now. Sounds great. And of course, your yeah. uh, your Netflix, uh, your documentary is still up on Netflix and Amazon Prime. Who the F is that yeah. guy? Yeah, the beauty of that is, you know, and I'm so blessed for all this great stuff happening, is that who the F is that guy, the fabulous journey of Michael Alago, just got renewed again Oh, nice. Netflix. You know, they never renew documentaries for right. this long, and we're coming up on our third year. So, so we're... we're Oh, we guaranteed till around September 2020, and then who knows from there. Oh, that's but yes, great. We, we are there, and in recent months, we just got added to Amazon Prime Video. Um, so it really is a blessing, and it, it's oh, very that's exciting. Great. Oh, that's awesome. Congratulations on all that. Thank I, you uh, so much. I was given an advanced copy of the book. Uh, I really enjoyed it. You've got a lot of great stories in there, not just with the metal and punk bands, but uh, Nina Simone, you have stories. Cindy Lauper, you have stories. Yep. Henry Rollins. Mm -hmm. Um, and also you mentioned, uh, you, you seem to speak, uh, fondly of Baltimore where we are right now. Oh, how great. Oh, yes. Well, the reason I speak about Baltimore is because, uh, Nina Simone made a record called Baltimore for CTI records in the seventies. Uh, CTI was run by named Creed Taylor. And, um, I think I do mention uh, a few things about Baltimore, the record in the book. Yeah, and you actually mentioned the uh, our local uh, LGBT um, newspaper, the uh, Out Loud. Oh yeah, you're on the cover, right. right? 
Oh, yes, that's right. I was on the cover of uh, Old Out Loud. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, then, yeah, yes, that's what I was on the cover of. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure if it exists anymore or not. I mean, you know, everything. Yes, kinda... you know, a lot of those great bits of, you know, newspapers and magazines uh-huh. we don't see anymore. That's true. That's very true. All yeah. right. So today, Michael and Justin, we are discussing personal struggles here on The Confessional. Yep. Okay. Now, this is a thing that uh, Mr. Alago knows a lot about, uh, you know, according to your book, I Am Michael Alago. You, uh, you've been through addiction. You've been through uh, health issues. You've been through being a, a gay man kind of growing up in the metal scene in the 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, how is that kind of got how what was that experience like like how how these struggles made you who you are today well i guess that's a bit of a loaded question because you asked me a bunch of things and they are all at once um but if we're talking about personal struggle i think the most personal struggle i have had was with drugs and alcohol um you know, I drank for a long period of time until it wasn't fun anymore. Right. And when it doesn't become fun, uh, there are health issues involved specific to alcohol and drugs. Sure. You know, your liver gets bloated, your mind, your body, your soul is gone, you're a zombie. Um, I, and, I, you know, I have to tell you, I don't know how I functioned. Uh, I was like a right. machine. I was, yeah, I was like a machine functioning mm-hmm. for many, many years. Um, and I, at some point, you know, I think I drank from 14 to 47. Wow. I had a little bit of a, um, uh, a, a I stopped for a brief Yeah, you said you had a few years there in the early 2000s, right? Pardon? You said you had a few years there in the early 2000s? Yeah, I'm trying to remember exactly. Um, I... At 32, I went to Hazelden in Minneapolis Rehab Center, and I stayed uh, what they call dry for mm-hmm. eight years. I didn't drink or drug, dry but I did nothing to help myself. Right. And in doing nothing to help myself, I didn't learn anything, because mm-hmm. all mm-hmm. I had was this crazy mind of mine who was constantly getting me into trouble. Mm-hmm. And But, you know, I still had an arrogance about me that going back into the music business, I was going to show you. Right, you know? right. And in retrospect, mm-hmm. what was I showing anybody? Right. It kept me. It kept me angry. It kept me sad. And until one day, somebody asked me if I wanted a drink. Uh, I was forty years old, and I said yes. Right. And then I had the worst years of my life from forty to forty-seven, drinking and drugging and winding up in jail. Mm-hmm. Uh, because you, you asked the hospital. cop. Did you ask a cop if he wanted to smoke some crack with you? I did. I, <laughs> I saw a handsome man on the street, right. and uh, it was like 3 o'clock in the morning, and I said, uh, I have some crack in my pocket. Would you like to smoke some with me? <laughs> that no, is quite the greeting. I'm, I'm a police officer, and you're under arrest. <laughs> yeah. What was so, you know, we can chuckle about that stuff now, but when that is, when those things are happening, mm. and you think it's okay, wow. It's not okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, both Justin and I have uh, had our addictive issues as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm actually I'm going to have 17 years uh, next month. 
Oh, how wonderful. Congratulations. I, yeah, I, thank you so much. I kind of did it uh, in the opposite way that you did. I actually got sober well before I kind of got involved in the entertainment world and, and all of that stuff. So mm-hmm. it's, it's mm-hmm. been interesting. I didn't have to have the experience of, like, how am I going to perform or, or speak publicly sober, you know? The whole, right, right. The whole thing has so just been it, terrifying, just, but it's wonderful. I was going to just say, so to end that part of the question, I think, is, um, like I said, I drank again from 40 to 47. At 47, it was a Sunday. It was, uh, no, it was a Saturday. October 20th, 2007, and I was so out of it. I was pacing my apartment Mm. until I got so tired, I just passed out on the sofa. Mm -hmm. I I came to on that Sunday, uh, October 21st, 2007, and I just thought to myself, I can't do this anymore. Mm-hmm. Everything hurts. I am a no-show. I've been lying to people. And I just knew that that wasn't really me. Right. It was the heavy addiction. Mm-hmm. So I don't remember who I spoke to that morning to this day, but I walked down, I walked down uh, to the West Village and went to a 230 12-step meeting, mm-hmm. and I stayed. Yeah. And... Um, I stayed, <laughs> and now I'm coming up on uh, this year uh, in October. I'll have 13 years clean and sober. That's great. And such a oh, it's incredible because what happens is you get a new life, right? And yeah. Part of that new life, you show up. Sure. You show up. You're responsible. People know they can rely on you, mm-hmm. and what a wonderful feeling that is. Right. Yeah. No, it's great prior to see to all the shenanigans and uh-huh. the BS. Uh huh. Yeah, you you seem to have such a great energy and attitude, and you, you look great. You look fit. So that's you know that's really inspiring to, to see somebody mm, be able thank to do you that so much. And, and still you know retain that uh, love of life and everything. You know, I think a lot of people oh, are worried yes. about being bored and sobriety, and you know, am I going to turn into a, a lameoid? And uh, it's like, no, you get to do whatever you wanted to do in life other than drink. Mm-hmm. One day I was walking down the street in the, not the West Village, uh, Soho, mm-hmm. and there was a mural on the street. It looked kind of interesting to me, so I went across the street, and the entire mural from top to bottom was the same line over and over again. And it said, I can do anything. Nice. And so, of course, I had to photograph that. Right. And, you know, mantra to live by. I can do anything. Right. Now, sometimes not all of that happens the way you want it to happen. Sure. But sometimes a version of I can do anything happens. Mm-hmm. And, you know, sometimes that's the only thing you need in any way. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's very true. You know, a lot of people say, like, if I had gotten everything I wanted when I first got sober, then I wouldn't oh be happy now, you know. Um, do you have anything you want to add or ask in that, Justin? Um, I guess I have a question. Was it hard uh, figuring out what to do with yourself after you you quit drinking? Ah, good question. Um, so, no, was it hard to figure out? No, because what happened was about eight years into my sobriety, uh, so a New York film director named Drew Stone said he wanted to make a documentary about me. So we had a couple of lunches, and uh, my ego took over for a minute. And I knew, because he loved music as much as I loved music, that he would be the right person to talk about my life. I didn't want it to be just about music. If we were going to spend that kind of time together, and we were going to Doyle from The Misfits and James Hetfield from Metallica and Lars and Cindy Lauper and 
Philly Anselmo from Pantera in the film. <laughs> I didn't want, they know me in all of the configurations of Michael. They don't just know me from music. Right. They know me from the shenanigans. They know me from just uh, all of us wound up being just very good friends yeah. and respectful of the artistry. So, of course, I now forgot where I was going. <laughs> Sorry, right. what was the question? That's okay. This is all okay. What was the question? How do you, how, what do you, how oh, do you fill your time? Right, when I got sober. So, I was already sober eight years, when, or seven or eight years, when Drew decided to make it. So, I was just kind of moving along, taking photographs, and um, the doc took about almost four years to complete because... Uh, we had low funds, and, you know, a lot of people were on the road, and we didn't want to um, interview people on the road, because, you know, on the road, all you care about is, is yourself mm. and your show that mm -hmm. evening. Right. We just felt like once we got people when they were off the road, and they were just, you know, not hassled by things going on on the road, right. um, it was easier to do. So that was going on. The movie gets released in 2007. What are we in? 20, 2017. And out of the blue, a little company called Backbeat Books asked if I wanted to write a book and did I have more stories? And I was like, do I have more stories? <laughs> of course yeah, I have more stories. nothing but stories. So for the last two and a half years, I was writing that book. Awesome. Uh, with a co-writer, Laura Davis-Channon. Mm -hmm. um, so no, when you ask... Uh, did I have a problem, or what did I think I was going to do once I got sober? Um, I was still doing it, you know. In 2009 and 2010, Cindy Lauper called me and asked me to A and R a dance record for her. And then in 2010, she called, and in that Cindy Lauper voice of hers, she said, <laughs> "Do you want to help me make a blues album?" Nice. And I said, "Well, you know." I've never made a blues record. And she said, well, I've never made a blues record. I said, great, sense. <laughs> we're on even playing ground here. Hell and yeah. I write about that record, Memphis Blues, in the book, because it was really important for me to help her make this recording. And we wound up getting nominated for a Best Contemporary Blues Album for the Grammy Awards. We wow. didn't win. Wow. But what that Still. indicated to us is that we really did a great job, and people heard. That's amazing. That. But the story is very, very good in the book. You know, not only do we talk about the musicians and um, the making of the record, there was a few things that um, relate to the civil rights movement, because there we are in Memphis, um, where Dr. King was killed, and we went to the Lorraine Motel, mm. and, uh, you know, that's all I'll tell you, because the story in the book is quite good. Okay. okay. All right. So if you want to hear the story, you got to pick up I Am Michael Alago, coming out next month on Backbeat Books. Uh, let us jump into a confession here. Uh, this one is from Duncan Alonzo, Norfolk, Virginia. Mm -hmm. Now, his personal struggle is finding out exactly how much of my personal resources a goal is worth. I have an innate ability to crush any goal I set for myself, but I have zero control of boundaries as a result, and it wreaks havoc in my personal life. When I was a kid, I played... Uh, something competitively, and on many occasions I would tr trade basically uh, everything I owned. Yu-Gi-Oh! Yu-Gi-Oh! Yu -Oh. Yu -Oh. Yu -Oh. yes, it's, a, a, it's a collectible like a card Pokemon? game. It's like Magic the oh, Gathering okay. and right. Pokemon card game, yeah. Uh, when I was a kid, I played Yu-Gi-Oh! competitively, and on many occasions I would trade basically everything I owned for a specific card or cards to finish a deck. 
I could win my way back to the same collection, but never knowing exactly how many resources to spend chasing someone has expounded when it comes to dating or promotions or anything else. Hmm. So it sounds like Duncan goes all in and doesn't know when to quit. And now I'm sorry because uh, you cut out just a little bit. It was a long long, um, question as well. Does this have anything to do with drinking drugs at all? I don't think so. I think that Okay, so it's really just a matter of having no boundaries. I guess And never never knowing when to stop. Right, right. Yes. I guess kind of doing anything to get that one goal, you know? Well... I have a lot of experience well, I guess with those. It depends on what anything is, right? Um, you know, you never want to mess with your integrity mm-hmm. and your honesty because that's, you know, that's all we got. Absolutely, is telling the truth. Um, I think over the years, uh, I know that no means no. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that if I am looking to achieve a certain goal. Um, I go by it truthfully, strategically, and like we talked about earlier, sometimes you don't get everything you want, sure. but you get what you need, mm-hmm. just like the Rolling Stones yeah, are. I, I you find, know? right, yeah, whenever I really go after a goal and do it, like you said, with honesty and integrity, um, and just slowly try to earn it, even if I Correct. don't get the actual thing that I set out, I end up getting something. Like, there's there's never a time where I'm like, I really regret, you know, sitting down and writing that song or doing this show or, you know what I mean? Like, there's always something that comes out of it, even if it's not the exact thing that I that I wanted at first. Mm-hmm, true. Um, but uh, let's see here. We have another well, one here. I think we answered his question. Yeah, I think so. I mean, was cool. that... Uh, Michael, was that a, um, for me, it does kind of feel sometimes like, you know, I'm mostly in the comedy world and it seems like the liars, the cheaters and the stealers can kind of get ahead sometimes. You know what I mean? Is that, uh, and then I think when you say something like that, well, how happy are you? Right. Right. You know, Mm -hmm. what's your life really Mm -hmm. like? I mean, have you had to sacrifice, uh, potential opportunities for the sake of, of staying honest and happy? Hmm. I mean, you must have seen a lot. I mean, you seem like a, a really decent, honest human, and that seems to be why everyone likes you so much, but you, you certainly must have encountered a lot of sharks in your days. <laughs> well, uh, sharks were probably very specifically to the music business, mm-hmm. and yes, in life, but I'm a good reader of who a person is. Right, right. So I really kind of, I feel like I know how to deal with that kind of a person. Uh Um, You know, for me, I think I mentioned this, or I say it in the book, I always tell the truth. When you tell the truth, uh, people respond to that. Mm -hmm. And then they know that they can have trust in you and confidence. Right, I don't know if I just answered your question No, you did, you did. You did. Um, yeah, I guess I'm a bad reader of people. Know, I think one knows when you're dealing with liars and sharks. I you don't know. know. And they usually, <laughs> you don't want them sticking around for too long. Uh, did, did you and find in the record they industry? That you find out about right. them, they don't stick around. Okay. So which you think, is a blessing. Right. So you think even, even in the record industry back in the day, uh, the sharks would eventually kind of get weeded out, exposed? 
Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, listen, who wants to deal with people who are not truthful right, and right. unkind? And as corny as it sounds, we don't know how long we're going to be on this earth. True. So you want to deal with people who are just good people. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not mm-hmm. perfect. We are human beings. Sure. But I don't want to deal with bad people. Absolutely. Because once that comes into play, I got to say thank you, but no thank you. Right, yeah. Um, has there ever been a time when you, you were like, I want to do this thing, but this person is just so shady, I can't work with them? Mm, mm, good question. Uh, you know what, to be perfectly honest, I, I, I don't have a real answer for you. Okay. All right. Well, let us move on to another confession. This is from a woman who uh, asked to remain anonymous. Sure. She says, I would have to say trying to help my childhood best friend out of a life of homelessness, homelessness, drugs, getting his GED, etc. And the things I went through along with him have been my hardest personal struggle. Once he was doing better, he got into an accident at the age of 22, pronounced dead, then alive, then in a coma. Now a vegetable for the rest of his life, he, try, he types I love you to me on occasion and cries, and he is trapped inside. Wow. That's really you know, sad. That's, that. that's so, you know, it's so very sad to hear, especially when we're discussing a young person right. who has their whole life ahead of them. But specific to the woman who asked the question, you can only do so much helping someone. Mm-hmm. And that's an that's a incredible thing to help another person, to be of service to them. Absolutely. But... If they're not in that same mindset that you're in and appreciate the help and listen to the help, then, you know, you're talking to, you know, like a blank wall, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. um, the person who you are indeed trying to help really wants to have, really wants to be helped. And if they want to be helped, then they're going to start doing the right thing and then their life changes right. but if you're just talking to them to talk to them and they say they're going to do something but they just keep on that path yeah. of drink drugs and homelessness mm-hmm. then unfortunately it's pointless right it's and then true. sometimes the outcome is not pretty at yeah all. and setting an example is you know the best thing you can do in those situations i think but uh, in this particular one, I don't know if you caught that ending. The, the uh, individual got sober and then got into an accident and is now living his life in a coma. Well, which is just terrifying. Okay, well, what, you know, what can you say? I don't know how. It's just—it's a sad situation. Mm-hmm. We don't know what his state of mind was when he was sober and driving. Um, I, I don't know what to say about yeah. that. It's just situation being young and something like that happened right and that maybe if he didn't have all those early issues maybe he wouldn't be in the state he's in but you know what do we know sometimes yeah uh, things happen right and then you just have to live with it yeah i found that's that's another truth with sobriety is like not every you can do the right thing and you're not guaranteed everything to, to go perfectly. You know, you can only control oh, your, not. I mean, I, I've known people that, you know, 
got sober, did everything right, took care of their health, and then, you know, got cancer and died in a year. You know, it yeah, happens sometimes. Yeah. Or die in you a know, under the, under the category of, you know, we only have today. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. also, again, not to be a Pollyanna or, or corny or anything, I was at one of my meetings uh, one morning, and I was talking to a gentleman friend there, and we were laughing and having a good time. And I can't remember exactly what the information was that, once he was the meeting, he was going to text me. So that evening, I still hadn't heard from him, and I thought this very unusual. So I called him, and I said, oh, hey, um, how you doing? And he said, you know, Michael, when I left you, I got hit by a car. Mm. And I said, whoa. He said, my head is killing me. Yeah. I'm in, uh, I'm not in the emergency ward anymore, but I'm in the hospital. Right. My left arm is numb. Oh, my so they're doing all these tests. That Weeks later, like, you know, this last week, uh, I saw him. He has a neck brace. His arm is feeling better. But I say that because we just don't know. We go from doing the right thing in the morning to being out on the street. And who knows if, you know, a car, a Mm. motorcycle, a bicyclist is not really paying attention. Right, yeah, yeah. And, you know, that's what happened to my friend. Yeah. But thank God, he's fine, he's up, and he's just getting a lot of tests done to make sure that there's no permanent damage to his arm or his neck. Good, good. Uh, speaking of which, one of the uh, more emotional parts of your story was, of course, when, you, when your friend Cliff Burton died uh, in 86 in the, in the oh, bus accident. Um, that's still so very touching, you yeah. know, because... Um, I signed Metallica summer of 84 after their uh, infamous Roseland gig, which was over the top, (laughs) extraordinary, people losing their minds, screaming, clapping, banging on the balcony, (laughs) not wanting them to leave the stage. Because even back then, in the summer of 84, they were that good, mm-hmm, you know? Mm-hmm. And the music was extraordinary. But you asked me about Cliff. Cliff, Cliff, what's up? I laugh only because what a lovely young man. Yeah. Uh, very, very extraordinary musician. Mm-hmm. I think he maybe even at that time in the 80s, he might have even been the best musician in the band. Really? Uh, yeah, but, I agree with that for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. But all of them had something to say with their instrument. You know, when I saw them, I I knew that I was listening and seeing four young men who were out of control, dedicated (laughs) to their craft, Uh and and in that early stage, you could hear they knew what they were doing. Right, right. Cliff was fun. I didn't have many uh, encounters with him. I signed them in 84. I'm mm-hmm. on the East Coast. They're on the West Coast. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're on the road. I did go see them a bunch of times on the road. Um, but uh, yeah, he, all I could say is that he was very funny, very lovely. I used to kid him all the time about those big elephant bell bottoms that he used to wear. Yeah. Where at the bottom, they weren't even flares. He had to be like, the only covered, metal guy doing that, right? His, all his shoes, (laughs) and he would just tell me, F off, Alago, go get me a (laughs) six-pack. And, you know, we were young, all in our 20s. Remember, the the, the name for them back then by their friends and family was Alcoholica. (laughs) Right, right, yeah. And, you know, thank goodness that never stopped them until Mm -hmm, that September mm -hmm. in 86. Mm -hmm. Everything was going marvelous. 
Master of Puppets was out. It was selling in the hundreds of thousands at that point. With no MTV, time. no radio. Oh, no, no, no. Word of mouth. Yeah. I mean, that was the beauty of Metallica. The underground scene mm-hmm. told everybody about Metallica. Right, and right. then once you saw them live, you knew this was the real thing. Mm-hmm. So word of mouth, seeing them live, that's what got them right, out right. there. You know, that's when Sharon Osbourne saw them, and mm-hmm. they had they were opening for Ozzy in various places. But you know, I remember, I I will never forget that Saturday morning. I was reading the newspaper, and Cliff Bernstein from Q Prime Management calls, and he said, "I have some real bad news, Michael." Mm. And I had no idea because we've never had a bad news conversation in the right. last two years. Right. And he said Cliff was killed last night in oh, Sweden. Oh man. And we, I, I, I just popped up from the sofa, and I started pacing again. Uh, and I'm looking out the window, thinking, "Wait, well, wait a minute, this really can't be." Oh and he said, "Yes, it was the middle of the night. It was black ice on the road, and the bus turned over." Oh, now, how horrible is that? Or what was? I don't know if he was maybe 24. Perhaps? I think 24. Justin, you know how 24. And just, you know, they yeah. were up and coming. People, you couldn't get enough of Metallica at that point in time. Mm-hmm. And that's what happened. And it falls under the category also of what we spoke of earlier. One day at a time. We don't know how much time sure. we have on this earth. Yeah. Be grateful. Be loving. Be kind. Because you don't know when that's going to be taken away from you. Absolutely. But Cliff was extraordinary. I adored him. I remember when the band came up to my office after Roseland and I got them beer and Chinese food. And they knew, Lars knew, and the band knew of the history of Electra. 1984, and I gave them cassette and vinyl mm-hmm. of the Doors, the MC5, nice. Stooges. Wow. Now, Cliff knew about this label that we were distributing called None Such, and huh. it was all like esoteric stuff, and that's what the, that's the stuff that Cliff wanted, other than saying, can you get me some Simon and Garfunkel? And I said, <laughs> sure, I can get it for you, but they're not on Electra, they're on Columbia. So I guess I wound up getting him some Simon and Garfunkel right. uh, vinyl. But, you know, he was someone who listened to a whole variety of mm-hmm. music. Mm-hmm. He really was all about the music 24-7. Yeah. Lovely yeah. human being. And, you know, at least we have the music, the videos that we can see. Yeah. But, you know, everyone is still, still sad about Cliff. Yeah. And, you know... It's sad because of being so young, so young. Were you, were you, anyway, did you also uh, know Ray Burton, Cliff's dad? Oh yes, they knew Mr. Burton, who unfortunately, as we speak, just passed mm-hmm, right. two months ago or so. Yeah. I think uh, he was very yeah, old he was though. A, I mean, he was like in his nineties. Well, I think he was right? ninety. But, you know, he lived a good life. <laughs> yeah, that's a good stretch. He kept the spirit of his son, Cliff alive uh-huh. because he would show up at all the gigs. Right, right, you know, yeah. That he had that energy uh-huh. to come. I mean, I don't think he went to every single gig known to man, right. but he was at many, yeah, many gigs. Yeah, yeah, he was a great and presence. And he was lovely. Right. Did you know him, Justin? talking I, about his son. Mm-hmm. I actually, I met him twice the, last year. Really? Wow. Uh-huh. 
he was I, he was one of the nicest celebrities yeah, absolutely like that I ever met. Wow. He, that's yes, cool. he was like everybody's dad. Yeah, I mean he he didn't just want to take a picture and shake my hand. He wanted to know who I was and, wow. and you know mm-hmm, mm-hmm. my relation to Metallica kind that's of great. It was He's mm-hmm. really a great guy. Wow. Yeah, he was one of those people, like when the young people saw him even going into a venue, he would stop and talk to everyone as if you were the only person on the planet. Mm-hmm. That's a gift. Yep. Sure, Not exactly. many people can do that. I recently met Joe Namath, and uh, Jason Newstead introduced me to him, and we shaking hands, <laughs> and we kept our hands in that position for a bit of time (laughs) because he was staring at me in the face. And when I was speaking, he listened to everything I had to say. And, you know, of course, vice versa. I mean, a Mm -hmm. historic figure, a lovely man, I soon find out. But, yeah, there are not a lot of people who, when you speak to them, give them your all. Right, right. exactly. Mr. Burton was an exceptional person. Mm -hmm. May he rest in peace. And uh, I'm sure there's lots of stories out there from everybody about Ray Burton. Yeah, definitely. And you were actually instrumental in getting Jason Newstead into Metallica as well, weren't you? Uh, That's correct. Um, I had just signed his band Flotsam and Jetsam. They had made an independent uh, record for Metal Blade. Uh, Doomsday for the Deceiver, I think. Pardon? Doomsday for the Deceiver, it was called, right? Doomsday for the Deceiver, that's correct. That is such a metal name. Brian Slagle's label, Metal Blade. And they they covered uh, Elton John on that. (laughs) Really? Elton John cover on that. That was their big hit, right? the cover of Saturday Night's All Right for Fighting. Saturday, you well, got yes, it got, wow. it, that got airplay, <laughs> I believe. Right, it did. Um, <laughs> that was like one of the standouts on that record, yeah. a cover song. But, uh, yeah, you know, I knew that, you know, when I got the call from Lars saying, you know, Michael, but first we all thought that the band wasn't going to move forward. Really? But of course, when I got, I was at the office at Electra one day and Lars called in the afternoon and we talked a lot about Cliff, of course, and about the music and, you know, them being young people in their 20s, they just thought, you know what? This is what we set out to do. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm just paraphrasing, but uh, it's what they set out to do and they just knew Cliff would want us to move on right, and yeah. move forward. And uh, like I said, these were very determined people, even from the very germ of when they started performing live. Yeah, uh, just one more cliff thing. You know what? I'm so sorry. I didn't even answer your question. So when I signed Flotsam and then there was, what are we going to do about the bass player from Metallica? Uh I knew Jason had that same energy mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that same charisma very different kind now, of player though very different style oh, oh of course very different player but extraordinary right absolutely own, right one of the and best young. live musicians and so at one point brian Spiegel recommended him mm-hmm. and i recommended him okay. and uh they went through lots of people and uh jason got the job they tortured him for the first couple years. Yeah, that's what I hear. Uh, yeah, which wasn't <laughs> fun. But I think they were hurting so bad. It was almost like, yeah, you're in the band, right. but you're not close. 
Mm-hmm. You know, everybody young deals with grief in different ways. Mm-hmm. But, you know, in the end, I think Jason was with them maybe 15 years. Yeah, something like that. And what an extraordinary ride that was Absolutely. for everybody. Oh, yeah, the I height mean, of the know, fame, one, you I got a postcard from him. He said, my birthday, I'm in Arizona, and I'm writing to you now from Poland. You know? <laughs> um, so, yeah, Jason, you know, I just went down to see him in Florida a couple weeks ago. He's playing with his new band, the Chop House Band. Oh, nice. And he has a studio paintings. And um, both were incredible. Oh, that's and great. He's an, ex- he's an extremely gifted musician. Mm-hmm. But more importantly, he was brought up correctly. Right. He seems he's like a, a very respectful person. Uh-huh. That's, yeah, he seems like it. So, I mean, Always great to the fans to as well. Mm hmm. Um, one last thing on Cliff Burton. It, 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 everybody noticed a big shift in style from Kill 'Em All to Ride the Lightning when they when they joined Elektra. Uh, how instrumental do you think Cliff was in shaping that new mo- melodic kind of almost classical sound uh, from the right. thrash sound on Kill 'Em All? Sure, was that his influence? Sure, sure. First of all, they were all so smart that, and this is just my opinion. Uh, Kill Em All is extraordinary. It's a landmark record. Mm-hmm. It is the beginning of everything. But them being the smart young people that they were then, and Cliff being very prolific, I think things just gradually, the songwriting style just gradually got better mm-hmm. because of the instrumental pieces that Cliff was playing. Right. And I think that the guys learned from Cliff. Seems like it. So, you know, Ride the Lightning, listen, man, that's still, I think, my favorite That's my favorite, record. too. Yeah. Creeping Death. I mean, everything on that I know. record. I know, it's amazing. It's extraordinary. Yeah. It's an it's... extraordinary record. What's your favorite um, uh, record, it's... Justin, from Metallica? And I think also just that, you know, record by record, they knew in... Inherently, in their hearts, that they could not go and make the same record over and over again. Sure, sure. So, you know, the beauty of that is, here we are in 2020. You may not love every single Metallica record. Mm -hmm. I think the last record, Hardwired to Self-Destruct, is a throwback a little bit Mm -hmm. to the early days. Mm -hmm. Um, But they are so good at what they do. Absolutely. Never mind they're so good. They're great at what yeah. they do. That they knew we can't just make the same record over right, and over right. again. Even though our fans, some of our fans would love us to sure, make sure. another Kill em All, Ride the Lightning, Master of Puppets. They knew they had to grow mm-hmm. in order to survive and continue right. um, you know, gaining fan yeah. popularity. Yeah. And here, like I said, 2020, they're still playing stadiums. Mm-hmm. What a blessing I know. to the talent yeah, and yeah. the know-how. Yeah, Justin and I, Justin and I actually like uh, a lot of the later stuff that gets dogged. Sometimes we even do a, a little tribute band called Short Haired Metallica. Didn't suck. Oh, I love it. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. I thought in two thousand nine, Death Magnetic was a great record. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. Death Magnetic is is probably. I mean, I, I don't want to say something's better than another, but compared to Hardwired, I think that was really a better album. But it Hardwired has this uh it, it just there's this impression that that's metallica coming back to where they were their roots but mm-hmm. it was really death magnetic that was yeah. that really 
brought them back to me at least. I, I mean, there was most fans will tell you there was a lull when yeah. Saint Anger came along. Mm-hmm. I mean, it had been there was a lot of changes. It right. had been a long time since they wrote original music, mm-hmm. and then Saint Anger to me it was great for a few months, uh, and it just didn't have the staying power for me. Yeah, and they yeah, don't play a lot of it live, but, and I think mm-hmm. that's a you know sign that it, that they feel the same way. I don't right. know. <laughs> well, Justin. There are all those records for you to enjoy, and you can love any one of them that you like. Exactly. (laughs) I'll tell you this, too. It's When people call them sellouts, it's important to note that they never redid the Black Album. I mean, that would be the the move to if they wanted to continue massive commercial success was to just do the Black Album over and over, you know, and they haven't done that. They left it alone. You mean a a version of the Black Album? Yeah, like they've they've never just, like, tried to recreate that that style. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Which is impressive, well, think, you know. Like that I would said, be... that's the beauty of them mm-hmm. growing, that they don't repeat themselves. Right. I think when people repeat themselves, it's because an artist is stuck. So they go back to what's familiar. Now, sometimes that familiarity, again, works for the artist. But I think they always knew they had to keep moving forward. And... That's what they've done all these years. Yeah, definitely. In all aspects of the personal and, and, and professional, life, they just keep moving forward. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's great to see them still around. All right, we have one last confession here. This is from Michael Medina, Raleigh, North Carolina. And I warn you guys, mm-hmm. this one is very sad. I had three pulmonary embolisms in the last four years because without health insurance, I cannot afford my medication. I tried to keep it under control with diet aspirin and prayer but it didn't work and two weeks ago i had my third pulmonary embolism i felt like i was drowning in my own body the odds of dying from a pulmonary embolism are one in three and i was lucky enough to survive a third they saved my life with an extremely dangerous clot buster that could have given me a stroke but i was lucky i am now in constant pain and can't breathe well enough to work to walk in a walmart this time my heart was beating so fast and my body tried to get oxygen now i have been now i have heart damage as well i owe over 150K in medical debt. When I had my second pulmonary embolism, I spent three days trying to decide if I should go to the hospital and cure another 50K in debt or if I should let myself die so that my family could get the 50K life insurance. Uh, healthcare is a human right, and without it, I will be dead in the next four years. I don't think I'm lucky enough to survive in a fourth embolism. I can feel that after the last one, there is something different in my body, something because my heart is still weakened. I will fall asleep when I'm just on the couch playing video games. I'm hoping the heart damage isn't permanent and that I will be back to normal soon. Now I've poured myself into fighting for Medicare for all because I never want anyone else to go through what I have been through. Wow. That's very heavy. Mm-hmm. And uh, if Mike listens to this, Mike, I love you, man. Don't make me cry. Uh, I <laughs> yeah, I, I did send him a message. We can all, we can all get through stuff. Thank you for that brutal honesty yeah. of yours. Mm-hmm. You got to keep the faith no matter what. Right. No matter what. Yeah. No matter what. And hopefully you can get through all these financial uh, difficulties. Um, I hope your health gets better. I was. I went through health shit. Oh, stuff. Oh, you're Sorry, fine. Curse. Um, I went through health <laughs> stuff for many, many years. I went through having HIV when there was no medication, mm. zero. Mm. So I'm laying on the sofa with fear, mm. not knowing if I was going to die. All my doctor could do was give me vitamin drips mm. and 
it was, I tell everybody, it was like Dallas Buyers Club. Uh, you know, I was getting these pills from Mexico, and, you know, everyone was just living in fear back then. Right, right. And so I was having these vitamin drips, I was having these uh, pills from Mexico that we didn't know what the heck they really were. Right. But you took anything given to you by a professional wow. because you wanted to live. Mm-hmm. So... I hope, Mike, everything, all I could say is I hope things get better for you. Um, keep fighting the good fight. Yeah. I hope you get through all, you and your family get through all of these financial woes. Mm-hmm. And God bless you. Really, bless yeah. you. Yeah, I, I talked to him and he said, you know, he wanted, he definitely wanted to hear people, he wanted people to hear his story on the podcast today and he, was, he wasn't ashamed to use his name. Or anything. Absolutely. And he said um, he is signing up for. He's he's hoping he can get Medicare right now. He lives in North Carolina where it's difficult. Okay. I told him to come up to Maryland and uh, just don't make more than fifty k a year, and, and they'll take care of you. Um, fifteen. Did I say fifty? I meant fifteen. Uh, I think you're good on both. Right? <laughs> well, yeah. Either way, I'm good. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's just a very sad story. We we certainly wish him the best. He's been a really good supporter of confessional. Oh, how wonderful. Well, tell him he's always welcome to write to me on Facebook oh, whenever nice he wants to. And if we could both give each other words of comfort and support, right. that's what we're here for. That's great. That's you. You got such a big heart, Michael. That really comes across as genuine. I really appreciate that. Well, thank you. It's great to see someone in you know who's done it all, who knows all these famous people, and you still seem like a very humble, gracious, kind human being, and that's that's really inspiring. Oh, well, I do my best. You know, I don't have an ego. Right. I just have always been a hard worker. Mm-hmm. And in being a hard worker, I am also of service to other people. And if you're not service in the service to other people, and if you're not kind to other people, then what are we here for? Absolutely. And if you're yeah. kind to other people, that creates like a domino effect. Mm-hmm. That domino effect just trickles to all the people you don't know, the people mm-hmm. you might know in the future. It's about humanity and kindness. Mm-hmm. There's enough insanity out there in the world right now that, you know, somebody the other day, I'll be quick about this, said, why do talk about politics on Facebook? I don't talk about politics because I see enough and hear enough about it on TV. I wouldn't know really how to discuss politics, nor do I want to. Mm -hmm. Because that, that, you know, when you don't know people and you put yourself out into a social media environment, wow, it's ripe (laughs) for hate and controversy. And, you know, all I want to do in all of my social media is put out goodness, whether that's in music art, theater, prayer, meditation. I just want to put that out there. I don't want to, I don't want to deal with controversy. Mm-hmm. And it's not because I mean, we're, we all deal with controversy at some points in our lives, but you know what I mean? In social media, which is like the way of the world today, I just want to be good. I just want to put out goodness so that it gives everybody some kind of uplift Mm-hmm. in their mm-hmm. lives for sure. the day. Yeah. Like I said, all we have is today. Well, that's great, man. It's uh, it's so good to have you on here. I, you know, it's, it's uh, we've wanted to, to talk to you for a while now. Your All your videos and books or everything are, are just so fun to watch. For, for a guy who's behind the scenes so much, you have quite the charisma and personality, you know? You seem like a star <laughs> well, yourself. 
Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Uh, Justin, do you have anything else you want to ask or, or say to Michael before we go? No, I think I'm good. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, Michael Alago, once again, the book is uh, titled I Am Michael Alago. It's out by Backbeat Books, and it will be out in April. Is there an audio version, Michael? No. Well, you know, it's available right now for pre-order on okay. Amazon, and the street date is actually March 25th. March 25th. Okay. And yes. is there, is there going to be an audio book version of it? You know what? You should ask the publisher that when we hang up. Okay, Write them well. an email and ask them. And I'm asking them as well. I have not got an answer yet. You, sh- you should do really if there fun. is. If there is, I think you should do the voiceover because you got a great voice. Well, Definitely, nobody else I should do it. Let, I wouldn't right. let anybody else do the voiceover. <laughs> it would be hysterical. It'd be totally fun. <laughs> All right. Well, Michael, thank you so much for your time. This has been such a great interview, and uh, we. Absolutely. would love to have you back whenever you, you want to come back and promote whatever. Uh, thank you oh, for well, coming by the both. confessional. Very, very much. I enjoyed listening to uh, the questions that you had from the, your listeners and oh, from good. yourself. And I hope I answered them well. And uh, have a great day, everybody. Thank you so much, you Michael. Too. Okay. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye.